and pastors here. And our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study this, your Son's teaching to us, that you would impress it upon our hearts and help us not to worry, but to trust in you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, while Ryan and I were uh, discussing the sermon schedule coming up, you know, Ryan asked, checked with me, are you, you know, good with the sermon you're preaching? Uh, And I said, Yup, I have anxiety. By which I meant, yeah, I know I'm, I'm preaching the passage on anxiety. Um, but Ryan, being a good pastor, was, are you okay? But as I thought about it, you know, there's something appropriate there. Because who among us doesn't have a little bit of anxiety? Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said the following. Anyone who really knows mankind might say that there is not one single living human being who does not despair a little, who does not secretly harbor an unrest, an inner strife, a disharmony, an anxiety about an unknown something or or something he does not even dare to try to know, an anxiety about some possibility in existence or an anxiety about himself. Kierkegaard would want us to see that just because somebody doesn't look anxious doesn't mean they aren't. Perhaps some of the people we think of as less anxious are just better at numbing it with risk-seeking behavior, or with alcohol, or with excessive entertainments. And who would say that they're not anxious if they have to do those things? Well, we're going we're to see in this passage what Jesus has to say about anxiety. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, And rather than switching to a different Advent series, we're continuing through our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
As we go through these sermons over the next few weeks, we're also going to be trying to tie Jesus' teaching in to the themes of Advent. Uh, We're going to see how it connects to who Jesus is and what it means that he's come into the world. But enough about tomorrow. Today we're going to have anxiety, or perhaps learn how to have a little bit less of it. Uh, In his progress through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking a lot about our desires. In the previous section, he told us to store up our treasure in heaven. And he also told us that we can't serve both God and money. And we could see him maybe going from there to dig a little deeper. You know, why is it that we're so attracted to money in the first place? And one possible reason is that we're anxious. We want to store up wealth to sort of help us assuage our worries about what the future might bring. Today, we're going to look at three points. Number one, what is anxiety according to Jesus? Number two, what can we do about anxiety according to Jesus? And then number three, we're going to see how Jesus, as God become human, takes on the cares of the world. So we're going to look at what is anxiety, what can we do about anxiety, and how does it connect to the person of Jesus? Okay, so first point, what is anxiety? The word Jesus uses here could be translated as anxiety, or worry, or care. It's actually not always a bad thing. Sometimes it describes someone who really cares about God or the welfare of other people. And that's not bad, right? After all, somebody who doesn't care at all about Anything or anyone is not really in a healthy emotional place. It's a good thing to be appropriately invested in other people's lives. And when we really care about God and other people, it helps us be conscientious in fulfilling our responsibilities to them. So that raises the question, what kind of caring, what kind of worry is Jesus calling us away from in this passage? Well, in this first point, we're going to observe a few of its features. Uh, First, notice that it's directed towards our needs, especially our physical needs. Am I going to have enough to eat and drink? Will I have clothes to wear? These are just examples of the broad category. Do not be anxious about your life and your body. We are finite, dependent creatures, and our lives are fragile things. So it makes sense that we think a lot about having the things we need to survive. And even here, it's clear that it's okay to care about those things. Uh, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, says Jesus. They're part of the daily bread that he's just told the disciples to pray for. And when Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God, that implies that it's appropriate to seek to care for our bodies as long as it's not the first thing that we seek. So where does this go wrong? Well, we already have the first sign that care has become worry. And that's when it becomes the first thing that we seek. When it it crowds out everything else. When it gets ahead of loving God and loving our neighbor. Jesus also highlights a couple of other warning signs. Care becomes worry when it doesn't accomplish anything productive in our lives. Jesus, Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan. Isn't that so often how anxiety is? 
Our, our thoughts nervously circle around the problem like a computer program that's gotten caught in a loop. And what are the things that send your thought life spiraling out of control? Maybe when you have conflict with somebody and you don't know how to resolve it. Maybe when you have a work project that you're not sure if you can do. In those situations, I've noticed that, that even if I know what I'm supposed to do, like suppose I'm supposed to send an email to a particular person and it has to contain this information. And, you know, maybe, I should, it's, a, maybe it's a bit sensitive. I should read through it twice and just check that the tone is good, sure. But instead... I get stuck in this mind loop, rehearsing the scenarios. And that eventually leads to procrastinating, which ironically in the end means that my fear of failure actually prevents me from succeeding. But there's another kind of situation as well. Will I be included in the next round of layoffs? Will my kid be okay when they go off to college? Will that medical test come back positive? That last example is a really good one, isn't it? Because, you know, speaking, if we were just rational decision-making creatures and we're waiting for that medical test to come back, how much time would it be rational to spend worrying about it? Zero, right? Uh, if it comes back positive, there'll be plenty of time to deal with it from that point. And if it comes back negative, worrying is just wasted time. Okay, so it's a waste of time and energy to even think about it. But how many of us can really do that? How many of us wouldn't be having our thoughts come back and back to that test and be drawn into a loop? So two signs of worry. It becomes the first thing that's pushing out everything else, and it's, it's not productive. A third sign that our caring has become worry is when it casts itself farther and farther off into the future. Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So our worry is connected to time. It's rather than just living in the present, we, we peer out into the misty future. And maybe this is why we still have so much anxiety around today. You know, one might think that we would worry less than Jesus' original hearers. After all, they were subsistence farmers. They were one bad harvest away from hard times. No wonder they worried about whether their needs were going to be met. Well, what about us? Modern technology has made these vast strides in food security and clothing and medicine. And we live in America, the dominant superpower of our day. So that means that we should worry a lot less, right? But you see, that's, that's not how worry works. If worry is satisfied today, then it hurries off to worry about tomorrow. If we have enough for this month or this year, well, what about the year after that? What about sending our children to college? What about retirement? What about end-of-life medical complications? What if the whole financial system collapses and wipes out our savings? Indeed, it actually seems that every innovation that secures our position also gives us new opportunities for worry. Jesus' hear, hearers could not dream of having the surplus income and financial instruments necessary to be earning passive income in retirement. They also couldn't imagine 
checking their phone for minute-by-minute updates on what the markets were doing to all of that. Oh, that's right, it's Sunday, there's, there's nothing happening. You see, one never really becomes content because the creativity of anxiety is endless. It can project its predictions out to the end of time, and it always thinks that it sees monsters off in the fog. I don't see any reason uh, to think that Jesus is forbidding judicious preparation here, by the way, the sort of thing that Solomon advised us to do when he said to go look at the ants and learn how to work hard. But of course, that's not actually how unproductive worry works, does it? it? It rarely works hard today. How could it? It's too busy thinking about the future. Fourth, our fourth and final sign here is Jesus wraps up this whole description of worry with one other tag. He gently rebukes his hearers as, O you of little faith. Care becomes worry when it lacks faith. It's fundamentally a problem of not believing in God and what he will do. You see, in all the millions of factors that anxiety permutates through in its frantic investigations of the future, the one factor it always tends to leave out is God and his promises. When we're in the grip of worry, we feel alone often, don't we? Abandoned even by God. So that's Jesus' diagnosis. You know, what's the deal with us poor, anxiety-ridden folk? Well, our worry is, number one, it's the first thing we think about that crowds out everything else. Number two, it's unproductive. Number three, it's stuck in the future. And number four, it lacks faith. Okay. Deep breath, everybody. What's the answer? What does Jesus teach? Before I dive right into Jesus' teaching here, I do want to briefly address one question that I'm sure at least some of you are thinking of. What about medication? That wasn't something that Jesus' listeners had, right? Um, But it's something we do have available to us today. Should we be medicating our anxiety? Well, for now, I'm only going to answer this briefly and just say, we're bodies as well as souls. And that does mean that sometimes we'll need physical help as well as spiritual help with our emotional problems. Medication can be a judicious part of that help for some people, although we do want to use it thoughtfully and wisely. At the same time, the problem is often spiritual as well as emotional, so we shouldn't just expect medication to fix it. Okay, I know that's a big question. I just wanted to address it briefly. We'll probably come back to it on our podcast, The Fourth Point. So if you want to hear more, tune in on Thursday. But what does Jesus have to say? Well, his first piece of advice might be summed up in contemporary internet slang as touch grass, log off, turn off the computer, and go outside. Jesus tells us to go and look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the fields. And you not see, but look, consider, think about them, spend some time on it. And not a caged bird, but a bird of the air that flies free. Not a cultivated plant in a hothouse, but the lilies to just sort of grow on their own out in the field. Kierkegaard actually suggests that Jesus is calling us to leave behind human civilization for a while. After all, talking with other humans about your anxiety isn't always helpful. You may often be misunderstood, judged, and ridiculed. The nice thing about animals and plants is they don't really do that so much. 
Jesus may actually be recommending being out alone in nature for our spiritual goods. Out there with the birds and the lilies, we might just meet God as well. Matthew and Luke actually tell us that this was Jesus' practice. He would sneak off into the wilderness alone and pray. Okay, but what is it that we're supposed to learn from the birds and the lilies? Well, the first thing is simply that they do not work. Oh, sure, animals are busy enough hunting and gathering, and the flowers are always growing and stretching out towards the sun, but this is not really work. The kinds of work that Jesus singles out here involve human artifice and foresight. So the birds are not to re- are, don't reap and sow and gather into barns. They don't do agriculture. This weird human practice we invented at some point of forcing nature to produce food. The birds simply depend on the food to be there, provided for them to find. And the work the lilies don't do is toiling and spinning. Another weird thing that humans do, making clothing, this extra cover, which we neither created nor were born with to buffer us against the environment. The lilies just abide with what God and their mother gave them. I think of my rabbit, Brownie, here. Now, when she hears her kibbles tinkling in her bowl, no creature moves as fast as she does to get there. But once she's had her fill, then she goes out to her little astroturf and she stretches out. And there's nothing that looks more relaxed than brownie in full flop. There would be no way to explain to this creature weird human phrases like, time is money. If she's full, she doesn't, she's not, has no worries and she's not thinking about anything. You know, what if I could live like that? You see, although bunnies and birds and lilies don't have rational intellects capable of understanding who God is, they also never question their dependence. They aren't bewitched by the idea that through work they can become independent. Rather, they just sort of live in their dependence, receiving every day what God has to give them. Psalm 104 actually describes this. It says, these all, speaking of animals, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. But Jesus isn't just calling us to live like animals without care. He's also calling us to do something that only humans can do. If our problem when we're trapped in worry is that we have little faith, then Jesus is calling us to faith. And faith means believing in God. He wants us to look at the animals, but not just see the animals, but also see God at work. And the lesson that we're supposed to learn is that God provides for them. It is God in his providential superintendence of nature who makes it so that there is food for the bird to find, who empowers the mysterious unfolding of the lily's glory, so much more intricate and beautiful than Solomon's finest. And then if we'll just devote a fraction of that intellectual energy that that worry is always devoting to thinking about the future, and instead we'll think about the animals and the plants, we might realize an even more awesome truth. Our Father in heaven actually values us even more 
than the birds and the flowers. Are you not of more value than they, says Jesus? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus wants us to know how our Father sees us. He values us. He knows us. All the glory and the beauty that we see in nature, in your Father's eyes, you are more glorious. And he's made you to be that way. He knows what you need, and he's able to give it to you. What's more, he also gives us a more glorious calling. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This Father who makes us glorious, who feeds and nurtures us, has called us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I take it that those two are almost synonyms here, that that how we seek God's kingdom is by living in a righteous way. And first of all, that means we live in a way that reflects our Father's will, that we want to do things that he thinks are good. And since righteousness is sort of the same kind of word as justice in the Bible, this is also a calling that means acting justly towards our neighbors. Jesus calls us into a relationship with a loving Father, which sends us out to love other people. In a way, Jesus actually gives us a new thing to care about. Dare we say, even a holy anxiety. Well, Paul certainly does dare. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about being anxious for the things of the Lord, or anxious for the welfare of other members of the body. Same word Jesus uses here. So the first thing that Jesus gives us to do is to really care about God and other people. If we focus on that care first, everything else will fall into line. Maybe it will even free us from our endless worry about needing material things. This is a care that builds us up in God's love, that makes us glorious creatures that image His righteousness rather than emptying us out, chasing what does not ultimately satisfy. All of this suggests a very simple prayer that we can pray. It's a prayer that we can pray even if we're caught up in our busyness, if we've missed our quiet times and are in the middle of our commutes. We can just pray, God, help me do the things that you have for me today. God, help me do the things that you have for me today. I find myself praying that prayer a lot. Let me also share one other little thought exercise with you from Christian counselor David Pallison. He says, begin by imagining two circles. One that's six feet in diameter, and another that's six inches in diameter. What you need to do today is in the little six-inch circle. Whatever is in the larger six-foot circle, you have to leave in God's hands, because you can't control or do anything about those worries. So there's just a couple little exercises for you to do. Okay, so that's that's Jesus' recommendations for anxiety. But one final point, since it is Advent, a time when we think about what it means to say that Jesus is God and also man, that in Jesus God was born as a little baby, the mystery of the incarnation is that, you know, God is both, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And there was once a whole church council to tell us that that includes his will. Jesus has a human will along with his human nature, just as he has a divine will as God. 
And what that means is that Jesus has human desires, even natural human fears. And I was thinking about that. What does that mean? What does that mean for God to become a little baby and take on human fears? What's it like to be a baby? Well, one thing I think is that you're dependent. It means to need. You need food. You need to be cleaned. You need care, love, because we know infants need the caring affection of their parents. And it means that to need all those things, you're not able to go and get them. There's one thing you can do as a baby, perhaps you know this, cry. Here we have to do away with that sentimental line from away in the manger, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Just to be clear, there's no basis for that in Scripture. We might prefer a line from Shakespeare, when we are born we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. Crying is our first experience of the futility and darkness of the world, and as one who's come to take the futility of the world upon his shoulders, I imagine that baby Jesus cried. But more than that, Jesus also learned, for the scriptures do say that as a human, Jesus learned things. Jesus learned through his parents' care what it meant to have a father and a mother who listen to you when you cry, who care for you. And here I think we should also remember David's words in Psalm 22, 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. These words seem to refer to an infant learning its mother's care, but at the same time learning faith, trust in God, because its mother's care is a sign of God's care. I don't know how to tell if a nursing infant has faith, although the child is without the power of words or much in the way of intellect. But whatever infants this verse might apply to, surely it applies to Jesus, first of all. Jesus, already as a baby, had faith in his father's care for him. Those ancient church teachers tell us that although Jesus has a fully human will and a fully divine will, his human will is perfectly submitted to God at all times. So while Jesus was from his first moments exposed to the natural pains and fears of being human and also exposed to Satan's temptations to sinful anxiety, he never for a moment gave in, but continually trusted and rested in his Father's care. Jesus is the Son of God, and he trusts his Father. And you know, a lot of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon of the Mount, I think, is just inviting us in, introducing us to his Father, and telling us that we can be the Father's sons and daughters too. That's difficult for us. It's very hard to believe, hard to trust that our Father will give us the things that we need, especially in the middle of anxiety. Certainly, this is no promise that a life of faith with God will not have trials. Faith in God does not immediately cancel out the darkness of the world. And there's no denial of human frailty or even death in Jesus' teaching here. He doesn't shy away from the fact that that beautiful flower will wither or be thrown into the fire. And what's more, sufficient for the day, here I prefer the stronger translation, sufficient for the day is its own evil. The days are evil. Every day in a fallen world is going to have its own little bit of evil to deal with. And certainly Jesus knew this. 
since his own faith did not exempt him from suffering, but rather he lived like one of the animals he mentions here. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he even went so far as to take on all the sufferings and sin of his people and bear it to the cross. But his faith in the Father's love for him, his faith in the fact that his father valued him, was strong enough for that. Jesus never gave in to worry, although he experienced human fear without sin. Jesus was not anxious about his life. The stunning mystery of Christmas is that this eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son is now something that humans are invited into in some way. Jesus fulfills this relationship perfectly. A perfect union of man and God, even already as a little infant. And what's more, he does it perfectly on our behalf. So that by free grace, we can know what it means for the Father to value us as he does Christ. And this not because of our works, but because Jesus has lived this out in a human nature on our behalf. And having been forgiven and accepted, we are invited into this kingdom into this work of righteousness, into this relationship of trust in our Father. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Our faith is often so small. But we pray that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts, helping us instead of being anxious to seek your kingdom, and ultimately to trust in you and in your Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.